If you're joining us this week for the first time in a while, allow me to catch you up where we have been since the beginning of the year. We've introduced a theme for our ministry, and that's kind of a weird phrase. What's our theme for ministry, or what's that mean? It, it's really just a thought that I would like us to keep in our forefront as we navigate all of the decisions that come with going through life as a church body for a year. Ultimately, our focus is nothing more, nothing less, than the Word of God. It is the instruction given to the church. But ultimately, what are we doing in accordance with the Word of God as the church gathers? The church is commanded to worship. No matter what hardships we might go through, no matter what circumstances may befall us, the chief end of man is listed as this. We're supposed to worship, to glorify God, and to enjoy Him forever. As a matter of fact, I would contend that the Bible teaches that the chief end of all men is to bring glory to God. As we've walked through this introduction of this one word, what does worship look like, I've been focusing on what does it mean when the church comes together and the things that we do. I don't know if you're familiar with this or aware of this, but us Baptists are a peculiar group of people. We are generally and historically anti-tradition, anti-liturgy. We're a very traditional bunch. And it's very easy to fall into a routine. It's very easy to fall into a pattern of doing things and to lose meaning in doing them because we've gone through it so many times. You'll notice on your bulletin this morning, the order of service is exceptionally different. Well, there's two reasons for that. One, our sermon this morning is about singing. The message from the Word of God has to do with singing, and I want you all to have ample opportunity to apply the text to your lives immediately. That means as soon as the sermon is over, as soon as we finish worshiping through the preaching of God's Word, that we will stand together as a church body and apply directly the text with the singing of the saints to the glory of God. Our text comes from Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with this verse already. But I'd like to make sure that we do not lose sight of what Paul is writing in a general sense to the church of Colossae. I'd like to begin reading in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul is introducing the idea of putting on the new self. So I invite you, with your Bible open and in your lap before you, turn to that page that we would read the Word of God together. Father in heaven, I come to you first and foremost asking that you would give us insight into your word. Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts, not only that we would be able to receive the message that you have for us, but also that we would have understanding and be able to apply it in our life continually. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 begins, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as Christ God, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Our text, our focus this morning will be verse 16, where we find the command, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The command in this text is simply to dwell, but it is in the imperative form. As a matter of fact, to translate this into the English language, the words, let this be in you, do not actually occur in Greek. This imperative form doesn't exist in the English language, and so the translators, in order to make it make sense in your English translations of the Bible, have to add, let the word of Christ dwell in you. The equivalent, I think, a better way to for add the forcefulness of the command that Paul is writing would be whenever we're yelling to our children, stop. Well, that's not a complete sentence, is it? Who's the subject? Who's stopping? What's well, you stop, right? It's implied. It's carried over by the emphasis and the force of the way that I'm telling my children to stop. Well, here in the Greek, we find exactly that same, in court, same occurrence. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. This is the fundamental building block of what it means to worship. Our graphic, if you were to go to our church website and you wanted to listen to one of our sermons and you looked at this current series, you would find it has the word overflow on it. Well, there's a reason for that because these things are connected. 
To dwell in the word of God means that this is a command that is given to the church that you would take residence in the word of God. The literal oomph and emphasis that Paul is giving is just like you go home and you make a place you're dwelling, so too you should make your dwelling in the word of God, in literally the word of God, breathed out by him and given to us in the inspired scriptures. From this, all worship overflows. When we think about singing, how is singing an act of overflow? Isn't singing supposed to charge me up and get me ready to worship God? Isn't it supposed to prepare me for the word of God to be preached? Church, I contend with you, if that is your concept of worship, it is against, it is antithetical, it is the opposite of what the Bible is actually teaching. As a matter of fact, when saints gather together for worship, it should be in this command. It should be, from a matter of fact, living and dwelling in the Word of God so much in our lives throughout our week that when the church gathers, and here's the problem, when you dwell in the Word of God, you live in a world that does not know it. The Bible tells you, you live in a world that is against God, that rejects God, that rejects truth because they do not know it, that decides it wants to live in darkness. And so when the church finally gathers, when we have the privilege of gathering with the saints, when we've dwelt this way and we come together, our singing is, finally, I can let everything that's inside of me out. Finally, all of this can pour out. Finally, everything that is within me that has been praising God can be poured out amongst these fellow believers who too have been called to the light. Which brings up another problem. In the 21st century, the trend for the modern worship service has become make it seeker sensitive. Make it so that people who are not believers can come to the church and know what's going on. And in our minds, this is what I mean by complacency. In our minds, we have made it so that the worship service is an evangelical outreach for our community. Church, if you hear nothing this morning, please hear this. What we are doing right now, what we will do again next week, unless Christ returns before them, is not an evangelical outreach. There's two sides of that coin. One, if you think that coming to church is your evangelical outreach or inviting people to church is your evangelical outreach, you're doing it wrong and you're not being faithful to witnessing the testimony that's been given to you to this world. The second side of it is this worship service belongs to the people of God. It belongs to the people that have already put their faith in God. That's who the church is. We cannot let the world set the agenda for our worship. Only God, only the Lord of our faith, only the one who we make king of our faith can do that. This is what it means to dwell, to take residence in him. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In you richly. That means completely. That means overwhelming every part of who you are. 
That means in every moment of your life, there is awareness. There is presence as you realize that Christ is with you, that the Spirit dwells within you as you dwell in the Word of God to carry out in obedience all that has been given to us. Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything. Instead, in everything, in every situation, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, tell your request to God. And the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is the promise given to the church. This is the promise given to those who have the Spirit dwelling in our hearts that when we dwell completely and richly, that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding is guarding our hearts against the wickedness of this world, against the sorrows and griefs of this world. Ephesians 3.14 all the way through verse 19 carries this parallel idea. For this reason, Paul writes, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Christians who gather together when we are commanded to dwell in the Word of God richly, it is not just a promise given to us to belabor how difficult it would be to come to Him. It is not to look at the Word of God and to berate one another by saying, have you been in your Bible this week? Have you done your Christian duty to dwell in the Word of God? So often we get these things backwards and we look at these disciplines as things which means that you're not doing it right and we seek to motivate each other by the consequences. Loved ones, the Word of God promises us more just than consequences of knowing Him. This is what the Word of God promises. You want the peace of God to that, that surpasses all understanding to dwell within you? Here it is. This is a positive instruction. Do you feel like you're missing something in your life? Here it is. You want to worship God more authentically? You want to know what God wants for you in your life? Here's the instruction manual. You want to know how to overcome grief, how to overcome sorrow. You want to know how to overcome anger and frustration. Here it is. Not just that you would read it and that you would move away from it, but that you would let it take up residence inside of you, that it would dwell in your conscious minds and in your experience and all that you do. This is given over to us that we would have strength. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Here's another frustration that I tend to have. The good old boy culture of the Bible Belt. There's a lot of good old boys. There's a lot of people that have common sense wisdom. 
Common sense wisdom is not the same thing as wisdom that comes from the Bible. When we put common sense above what the Bible teaches us, not only are we not worshiping God authentically, but we're missing the command that we're supposed to be, that we're missing the command that is given to us that we are supposed to dwell in the Word of God. Loved ones, I remind you today, when you dwell in the Word of God, others will look at you and say, you're a little bit half-step from crazy. They might even call you old-fashioned. I'm not afraid of being called old-fashioned so long as it's 2,000 years old-fashioned. I'm not afraid of being called a little bit crazy as so long as I am stricken, that I am strapped to, that I consider myself a slave, that I've taken off the old self and put on the new self by the commands that are given to me in this book. And if that goes against common sense, even then, I've got all the wisdom I need right here. Wisdom does not come from common sense. What the Bible teaches of human nature reminds us that man lacks wisdom. Seeking to become wise, they became really, really smart. Nope, that's not it. What does that verse say? It's in Romans chapter 1. Seeking to become wise, they became all-powerful and capable of taking care of themselves. Nope, that's not what it says either. Seeking to become wise, they became fools, exchanging the glories of God for the, or the image of the Creator, the image of the Creator for creation. Where does wisdom come from? Proverbs 2.6. Great is our Lord and great His power. His understanding is infinite. Wisdom comes from the one who has infinite understanding. Proverbs 2.20, that you may walk in the way of good men and keep the paths of the righteous. Without discernment, church, we are unable to distinguish between the common sense of man and the biblical precepts that come from God. Where does discernment come from? How do you tell the difference? By dwelling richly in the Word of God. By allowing it to dwell in you in all wisdom. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The command given to the church in this passage is not just that we would sing, but it says that we would sing to one another. Here's what's interesting. This phrase, one another, permeates the whole New Testament. When we read the instructions from the apostles and we look at all of the different letters that are found in the New Testament, when we look at the examples found in Acts, when we look at the Gospels and what Jesus taught, all throughout the New Testament, this phrase keeps popping up, one another, one another, one another, over and over again. The Bible is teaching us that we are not only to 
do this by dwelling in the Word of God in wisdom, but also in company. That we're to be at peace with one another, Jesus taught, Mark 9.50. To be of the same mind with one another, Paul wrote in Romans 12.6 and Romans 15.5. That through love, that we are to serve one another, Paul wrote in Galatians 5.13. Romans 12.10 teaches that we're to be devoted to one another in love. That we're to give preference to one another in honor. Philippians 2.3 teaches us that we're to regard one another as more important than ourselves. This phrase that keeps popping up, one another, one another, one another, gives us the sense of the community that is supposed to be doing this together. But here in Colossians 3.16, actually, loved ones, the word's not one another in the same sense. Do you know who you're supposed to be keeping company with when it says singing, teaching, and admonishing one another? Even a company of one. This is amazing, I think. Why do songs matter in the worship service? Why, when we think of worship, does our mind only think about the song part? I know we've been going through this sermon series now for four weeks, so none of you are thinking that anymore. You see the entire ensemble of worship as worship. Even now as we preach and you engage with it, if you were here last week, you know that that's worship. Why do we sing songs? I don't know about you, but this half-step crazy that I experience often makes me sing songs out of nowhere. I know that's a weird character flaw. The way that I engage with music is truly an encouragement to me. As I think about lyrics that have pointed me to God. As I think about songs that have taught me of the depth of God's love for me. When I find myself in difficult circumstances, when I find boundaries pushed that I'm uncomfortable with, these songs are a comfort to me. This one another that we're teaching and admonishing may be yourself. The one another may in fact be the Spirit of God dwelling inside of the believer and none other than you. Using songs to teach and admonish. We know what teaching means, right? To impart new knowledge and assimilate that knowledge into somebody else's understanding. What does it mean to admonish? To correct. To to redirect. Because sometimes we find ourselves in circumstances where, well, God is, I know he's taking care of me, but he's really, he's putting me in a trial right now so that I can prove how strong I am before him. No, you're thinking like the world. You've got good old boy wisdom. Turn back to the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that God wants you to prove how faithful you are to him. The Bible says he wants you to learn how faithful he is to you. So in your grief and everything that you're going through, whatever trial it is that comes before you, do you remember that he is the one that is there? And in your weakness, in your failing faith, will you turn to a song? Will you turn to a lyric? Will you turn to a scripture that reminds you of that? Well, that's worship. 
That's real worship. When you strike up the lyre. When you sit at the piano. When you fix your mind on God. So what does it mean when the church comes together? Are we singing to one another? Well, certainly that's part of it. Certainly, the voices of the church, the song service, the lyrics that are chosen, all of these things are done with intentionality and great concern and great effort to make sure that we are teaching and admonishing each other what is right. What is right? According to Scripture, that we would worship Him in all things. It says that when we come together, we're to be worshiping God. Loved ones, even when the church gathers, when we're singing to one another, when we're, even if it's a community of one, I want you to pay attention. Paul's, this is kind of confusing the way that he writes this. The singing of songs and hymns and spiritual songs with all thankfulness in our hearts The last two words of my translation read, to God. To God. I think the King James says, to the Lord. Who are we singing to? It's not to one another. Nope. The singing is there so that we can teach, so that we can admonish one another. But who are we singing to? We're singing to God. The Lord. We're singing to Him for His pleasure, for His glory, for His preference. We're commanded to sing with grace in our hearts, and this is what I mean when I say that worship is an act of overflow. That as we've experienced a walk with God throughout the week, and this is indeed individual. Your walk looks different than my walk. You have a relationship with God that is built upon your understanding and your strength and the difficulties that you go through and the way that he provides for you and his faithfulness to you and your faith towards him. And that's yours. And I also have mine. What makes me want to sing out loud as the church assembles is that I realize finally that this group of people that I've been called to worship with, well, they've got the same thing in mind. They want to worship God the same way that I do, that their hearts are also overflowing with the testimony of the way that God has provided for them, that grace has filled their hearts to the extent that now it pours out of me like an overflowing tap. Zephaniah, the prophet, chapter 3, verse 17, says... The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He who takes great delight in you, in his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Think about what this passage of Scripture teaches us. As we sing, even as an individual, as we lift our voices to God, as our hearts are filled with the grace of God and it overflows in a community as we sing together, God sings with us. Not only is He glorified by the dedication of our hearts, but He sings with us. He takes delight in us. If you remember where we've come through this worship journey as we've been on it, I began by saying that worship begins by acknowledging 
Proverbs 22, verse 6. I am a worm. I am a worm. I have no reputation. I deserve nothing. I am nothing. And here I am worshiping with God. The reason I'm able to worship is because I realize how little I am to Him and how great He is it to me. And now here I am and He takes delight in me. Be careful, be careful. Don't think that I'm saying that God wants to lift us up or that he wants to exalt us. He's the only one that should be exalted. But in our minds, if we have this awareness of what has happening through the movements of worship, that God is worshiping with us, that he takes rejoicing in us as he sees our hearts be conformed to him, as we're filled with grace, as our hearts flood the room that we are in with grace, that our neighbors would see it, that they'd hear our testimony. The parallel exhortation that Paul gives in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 19 is that we are to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit, to sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. This is a wonderful testimony that we have that we are able to take delight in and that we're able to relish and celebrate in. But I ask, why does Paul give us this list? Why in Colossians 2, and as well as Ephesians, do we find that we're supposed to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? You, like me, have probably heard people say that these are all unique and different. That there's a time for psalms and there's a time for hymns and there's a time for spiritual songs. But as I read this text, what stands out to me is not that Paul is making a distinction between these three things. In fact, even as I worked this week to understand and work out what's the difference between a psalm and a hymn, I found that there's not much of a difference. Historically, there's never been much of a difference. So what is it? I think what Paul is teaching us here and encouraging the church in Colossae, as well as the church in Ephesus, as well as the church in Greenwood. There's a wide variety of songs that we can use to sing and praise God. It's not an issue of blind conformity. It's an issue of genuine expression. That means that what we do must be constrained only by worshiping God in a way that accords with His Word. But the more important part, well, no, not more important. There's nothing more important than doing it according to God's Word. But the exceptionally important part is that when we sing, we do not turn our minds off to what the lyrics are singing, saying. How often do we gather together to worship and as a means of routine, we sing, just for example, Amazing Grace. I love that song. I know it so well. I knew that song before I was a Christian. I learned how to play it on recorder in the fifth grade. I love recorders. <clears throat> It took a while for me to realize how precious those lyrics were. That he saves a wretch like me. When I was in the fifth grade, I didn't even know what a wretch was. 
I thought it was a bad word, so I called all my friends a wretch. I remember the first time I heard those words, and for the first time I knew what a wretch was, and when I sang a wretch like me, I meant it. And I thought about God saving me, and I considered the blindness with which I walked through this world, unable to perceive spiritual things. I considered the struggle that I had in my unsaved state to turn to God's word and to simply understand what these spiritual things mean. I remembered the first time somebody taught me the greatest lesson I've ever learned. If you want to understand spiritual things, you have to approach it in a spiritual way. So maybe before you read the Bible, you pray. Maybe before you read the Bible, you take a moment to make confession and acknowledge the truth of who you are. Because then we can sing, I was blind, but now I see. The veil and darkness of sin that once shrouded all of my understanding has been lifted. And does that make it so that as I stand before God that I'm able to sing with a sense of routine? Or does it mean that as I stand before God, as I sing these things, and now that the veil has been lifted and I understand them to greater depths and to greater heights and to greater all distances expanding, I understand just how much he loves me. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This exhortation that is given to the church isn't just there because we're supposed to gather together once a week so that we can go through the formalities of being a church. It's here because the genuine Christian has been bottled up. The genuine Christian has been living their life in such a way that they have been worshiping God, that they have been singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, even an audience, a community of one. And they want... They long for, they hope for, they look forward to the day in heaven when all the saints are gathered up, singing together for the glory of God. And they want a foretaste of that. They want a glimpse of that experience. And that is available to them in the local church. The invitation today is simple. It's not just something that we want you to do or that we want you to be a part of for today. This isn't a normal practice that we would put the songs at the end of the service and that we would focus on the music part of worship at the end of the service. We're doing it because we want you to apply it today and be committed to applying it for every Sunday that we are privileged to continue to gather together in. The invitation that I offer you today is that if you don't understand these spiritual things, that you would approach them in a spiritual way. That as we sing together, we would be taught 
and we would be admonished. Can we take a moment to consider how we can do that? Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, none of us here are capable of understanding all of the truths that you understand. We're not capable of even approaching wisdom without you. God, as we sing this morning, I pray that we would be singing to you. That as we sing the words, God, that we would consider what they mean. And then as we leave this place, we would continue to sing in our hearts as they're filled with grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You stand.